You're listening to the Toolstation Western League podcast with Ian Knockholds and Tom Hiscott. Welcome, listeners, to episode 24 of the Toolstation Western League podcast with me, Ian Knockholds. And I'm delighted to be joined not by the editor of the Western League Bulletin, Mr. Tom Hiscott, but by straight off the subs bench, um, one of what Eddie Jones would call the finishers. It is James Healy, our social media manager. We've, we've, given, we've given Tom the week off because there wasn't a great deal of, um, of football uh, that took place over, over the weekend. But, James, it's always lovely to see you. How are you? Very well, Ian. Recovering from COVID now, so a month or so down the line. Still no taste or smell, as I keep moaning to you about, but um, I think I'm over the worst of it now. So, yeah, all good. How about yourself? I'm I'm not bad. I mean, it's ironic, isn't it, in some ways, that we'd spent most of December worrying about COVID postponements, only to be reminded uh, in January of the great British weather and its ability to completely run roughshod over the entire non-league fixture calendar. Yeah, it was... Um... Quite wet, wasn't it? It, it has <laughs> been a bit, Friday yeah. evening and uh, Saturday morning. It, it, it woke me up about four o'clock on Saturday morning. It was that heavy. I thought, not going to be many games on this weekend. Because I was looking forward to going down to your old stamping ground, you see, because devices were scheduled to um, to play Sherbourne. And, um, I mean, it would have been a... I'm sure they would have given... I'm sure the, the Zebras would have given us a rough ride. But I was certainly looking forward um, to my to my trip to Shoreburn. But, you know, like the rest of the games, it, it, it appeared on uh, on Saturday that didn't, um, you know, it didn't beat the weather. It must have made for quite a, a, a busy day for you because, of course, you were constantly updating fixtures as they were being, um, as they were being lost to the weather. Yeah, the beauty of Twitter. So you're pretty instant, like, constantly looking on there. I was actually driving, so I had the wife sat beside me with the phone refreshing saying oh they've just announced that game's off so she was she was updating the app while I was driving and I was telling her how to do it so uh, we got there in the end and yes it's a shame all the games are off I think people are itching to get out and go and watch some football yeah well it's great to see team Healy in action there and um, I think I think the other person we, we should give a, a special shout out to is Ross Reed, of course, a man that you and I know very well and um, somebody that I'm sure the listeners will be very familiar with at Southwest Sports News. But, um, you know, one of the great benefits of social media, particularly at our level of the game, is that platforms like Ross, as well as uh, obviously our own league um, Twitter account, um, provide um, a, a platform to keep people updated, don't they? Because, of course, in the good old days, I would have turned up at Sherbourne only to find out the game wasn't on. Yeah, we've all been there before. Um, yeah, it, it, it's great because the more people that are publicising our league and letting fans know that games are on or off or kick-off times and things like that, it's, uh, it's great for us. And Yeah, we work closely with Ross. We try and tag him in stuff. Got thousands of followers, so you know, say the more people that know that games are off, save some travel into games. Uh, well, that would have been quite funny seeing you arrive down at, at Riley Grove and, and no one there. <laughs> yeah, uh, I once did that at York. We Yeovil, when I worked for Yeovil, we were away at York and um, we literally pulled into the car park and the steward come across a nah, game's off, it's just been called off. Turned around, longest trip for a bacon sandwich ever. <laughs> Good grief. Well, I tell you what, that's enough talking about football that hasn't happened because I am very pleased to say that we did get two games on and we will be talking about them on this week's podcast. Uh, in fact, we'll be hearing from one of the coaches at uh, one of those clubs, one of the four clubs involved in football at the weekend, um, Dean Horseman. He's now at Bishop Sutton, so I'm looking forward to catching up with him again. And uh, later in the podcast, we will also be hearing from a man who's yet to make his Western League podcast debut. It's Sean Annitz, the manager of Bridport. So I'm very pleased that we've got an opportunity um, to have a chat with Sean and hear what's been going on down at Bridport, because, of course, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's been a difficult time for them as well as the rest of us. And finally, we will be hearing from none other than Martin Cassidy, the, uh, the CEO, of course, of of ref support, everybody's everybody's favourite Twitter account. Um, but uh, Martin will be reminding us why we need to do more to love the whistle. And it's always a pleasure to catch up with Martin and have him on the podcast. So um, always, uh, always a good chat there. So uh, plenty for you listeners on this week's podcast, a, a bumper three interview schedule. There's might not be a lot of football to talk about, but we'll always try and give you some good content on uh, the Tool Station Western League podcast. So over to you then, Jim. Um, can you run us through the action um, from Saturday? Um, yeah, two games survived. Uh, first one, 421 fans attended the fixture uh, between uh, 
Longwell Green and Bishop Sutton, obviously Longwell play on their fantastic new 4G pitch, um, where Sutton turned uh, turned over the home side with a 2-1 win. Uh, Sutton's main man got the ball rolling for the away side, o- Oakland Buck capitalising on the mistake at the back to make it 1-0 uh, in the first half stoppage time. Um, but the home side regrouped during the interval and levelled early in the second half. Thanks to a spinning finish from Sack Cheatham. Uh, but Sutton hit back instantly via a chip finish from Jacob Bird um, to give them all three points. So, yeah, it was um, a good crowd over there. They've been getting um, some good crowds over at Longwell uh, lately since they've uh, updated their facilities. It's good to see. Um, and in the other game, Lebec uh, responded well making, after making Slugger's start to draw 3-3 with Cheddar. And visitors made a fine start to the contest with Rick Bennett curling home a magnificent free kick to put them ahead in the early stages. Zach Young then equalised for United five minutes later, but Cheddar soon found their groove again. And after Harry Taylor had restored their lead, Bennett whipped home another fine set piece to make it 3-1 after 33 minutes. But the first half goal scoring didn't quite uh, finish there, though, and Lebec managed to have the deficit when uh, Josh Morgan-Williams struck before Sasha Tong, well-known name, um, scored the sixth and final goal um, with 10 minutes to go. Um, no, sorry, 10 minutes after the break and uh, the game finished 3-3. So we were lucky to get two games on, obviously, on the artificial pitches. Yes, it was definitely the age of the artificial pitch. And, of course, nobody will have been happier to see that uh, uh, Longwell Green Bishop Sutton game get on than Dean Horseman, uh, first team coach um, at Bishop Sutton. So I caught up with Dean and um, we reflected on what was a, a fantastic day out um, for Bishop Sutton. Yeah, no, yeah. As soon as we seen we had Longwell Green, we thought, well, no matter what the weather's like, we'll be on. And... Uh, yeah, as it was proven, it was only us in Lebec. What, Long or Green in Lebec that was on, so yeah, it was good. I mean, there was another fantastic crowd at Longwell Green. We're getting used to this um, uh, for them. I mean, was that a motivation for your players? Did it help, you know, have that sort of cup final feel about the game? To be honest, no one really took any notice of it, really. No one really took any notice of it. I did look across and thought, God, it's busy, but no, we didn't. None, none of the players really mentioned it or nothing. It was just, they were just going to do their job, really, I think. Uh, and they did that very efficiently. I mean, you've been on a good run of form over the past couple of months. Uh, I mean, ironically, that you could argue that that, that run of form started when um, Longwell Green beat you at your place. Obviously, I've only been about for six games, so I'm, I wasn't at that Longwell Green game when they beat us so all I know is since I've been there yeah we have been doing alright we've been on a decent run so what was it that enticed you back into the um, to the Western League because um, obviously um, you'd been previously with Hallen um, I mean what was it that um, um, John sort of told you about Bishop Sutton that, um, that uh, got you involved with that club well he basically was ringing me two or three times a week and at first I was saying no, no, no and then yeah I just thought yeah let's go and give it a go because I had a couple of months out of football and I was just watching games and suiting myself and then yeah John rang me sold it to me well and I thought yeah let's go and give it a go and a few of the players had contacted me as well so I thought yeah why not let's go and let's go and have another little look at it I mean, certainly Bishop, Bishop Sutton at the start of this season caught my eye. Um, I know they've not had the greatest of times um, over the sort of the last few seasons, but they, they were they were certainly getting results. Went into a had a little bit of a dip, um, but um, results have been impressive of late. Now I'm not going to um, blow your trumpet for you because obviously you mentioned that you've only been involved in the last six games. But I mean, in that run, you've not only beaten the likes of Bocco, Abertonians, and Lebec. Um, but you've also got a draw with league leaders um, Welton Rovers. So, obviously, the boys are doing something right on the pitch. Yeah, well, um, that game frustrates me. We were 1-0 up with five minutes to go, and they were down to ten men. So, that game frustrates me, because that should have been three points instead of one, really, if I'm honest. What do you put your good run of form down to? Is it Have you been lucky with player availability, or have you, do you think that you've hit upon a sort of a, a way of playing, a style of play that really suits the personnel that you've got? Well, the, what I was getting from the club was that player availability was not very good. That's why the dip in form happened. And unfortunately, the keeper broke his ankle, mm-hmm. Tom Creed. 
he broke his ankle and John was struggling to get a keeper in and it was like well, thanks it was costing costing the team dearly. The ones they were getting in just weren't good enough. I literally managed to sign Dominic and yeah, it's been a big difference. Just having a what I call a proper keeper and he looks the part, he is the part in my eyes. And that's been a big a big help. I think player availability and then getting a settled keeper has helped. So since you've been with the side, have you been able to bring any new faces in? Have, uh, are there any names that the, the Bishop Sutton fans need to be looking out for? Uh, yeah, we, we um, me and John and Dan Spill, the assistant, we all sat down and said what we needed and what we wanted. So we went in and um, we brought in Jack Durant from Roman Glass which obviously he's been at the club before, experienced player, very good, very good head, and yeah, he's been good since he's come in for us. Um, and then we got Jacob Bird in as well from Welton, who, very good attacking player, he's got two goals in four games, so that's been a good sign-in. Um, and then we had one of our centre-halves leave, and go to manage Bristol Telephones. And we had another lad that, unfortunately, has been ill. So we had to go and sign a centre-half as well. So I brought in Keith Burney from, um, well, I don't know where he was. I think he was at Haaland last. But, um, yeah, we brought him in. And they're three good lads that have improved the squad and they fitted in nicely. Could you tell us a little bit about the management structure uh, at Bishop Sutton? Because obviously we've, we've, we're familiar with you because uh, we've had you on the podcast before and it's great to catch up with you again. We, um, obviously, John Toy's the manager and you've, you've, you've mentioned some other names as well. So what's the setup like at Sutton? Yeah, so we've got John Toy as the manager. Then he's got Dan Spill as assistant. Um, I think I'd come in as assistant, first team coach, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then we've got another guy, Gary Fish, who comes along with us, and he's just uh, an extra voice, and he's there just to hack, give us a hand at training, and things like that. I mean, because you've obviously been around this level of football for a while, and I mean, it's a recurring theme on the podcast. You know, have you ever known um, a time in 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 non-league football like the one we're having now, where? Clubs do, you know, even at the top of the league, they seem to be really struggling um, to field a settled side every week. And that's not necessarily because players are coming down with COVID. They're just finding other things to do on a Saturday. Yeah, well, like when I spoke to you last, player availability is, they're not like olden day players now. They, they go shopping. Um, yeah, and we've had, we've had a lad miss the game because he went to afternoon tea with his girlfriend. And, yeah, player availability nowadays. But it seems to be the modern thing that football's not high on the list as it used to be. But luckily, we're, I would say the boys lately, we've been having a settled 15-16 a settled now, really. So that's why we're reaping the rewards of picking up some good results. I mean, it, it's a sort of a mix of the old normal and the new normal, isn't it? When we think of, you know, COVID postponements that have been happening in the month of December, and then, of course, the great British weather rears its ugly head in uh, in January and, and, and reminds us all that it has the capacity to wipe out nearly ent an entire slate of, um, uh, you know, of fixtures. I mean, in a way... It, it, it's creating this sort of fire break that you know people have talked about in other aspects of society. So, do you feel confident that you know once the weather clears, we'll get back playing and we'll get this season finished? I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. The last few years have been not been good, have they? For especially for the teams that are going for titles and things like that, and the seasons are ending early. Yeah, so I'm hoping that we can get it finished this year. So when you were talking to John about getting involved in the team, um, were there any targets set? Did you have any um, objectives that you were looking to achieve this season? The previous years, as you said, Bishop Sutton have been struggling the last couple of years. Um, so John basically said to me he's looking just to steady the ship, as you can say, and he set himself a target of top six, like to get six. Yeah, that's his target, so that's what we're aiming for. We know it's going to be difficult, 
That good run of form, of course, that you've been on recently has helped because you're 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 up to eight at the moment, and by the sounds of it, you're looking you're looking at going a little bit higher still. Uh, yeah, that's the plan. Never settle where you are. So we're, we'll just take game take uh, game by game and just see where we end up. But yeah, we're doing okay at the moment. Well, the next game uh, that's coming up is Oldland, uh, and that they're visiting your place. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're, you know, positive. I, I mean, Oldland are, are certainly a, a better team than they've been in recent seasons. But I, I, I guess you've got to be optimistic that you can get something from that game. Uh, yeah, that was one of the first games. I, well, the first game in the dugout was Oldland away that I was at, and we won three one. Um, but yeah, Oldland, they're a good side good side um, and we had to play well to beat them at their place so we'll have to be good again to get a result I believe because they're, they're a good side and, and then you've got a real test coming up you've got a trip to Warminster and they've been in really really good form so um, I mean that's going to I think that will tell you a lot about where you are this season won't it yeah definitely definitely they're a good side that's a very difficult game for us but hopefully we can get a result on a Saturday and then go there full of confidence and have a go, see what happens. And my thanks to Dean for his time. Now, before we move on to our next um, manager interview, um, one of the things that I found myself doing on Saturday when um, I was concerned that I wouldn't have any football to watch um, was um, having a bit of a nose around social media for a bit of archive footage. Um, we, we talked about this a lot during lockdown because there's been an explosion in recent seasons with clubs um, capturing more video content of their games and posting it on YouTube. And of course, you know, we've got some really high end stuff, some, you know, documentary style footage um, from Mausel. We've got the excellent um, um, weekly game coverage um, from um, Pyron Films. And, um, you know, and of course, there are, you know, there are others out there as well, including the great Roland Millwood, who stands there with his gimbal in the pouring rain and the freezing cold every single week um, to give us action from um, from Warminster Town. So uh, we thought it would be a good idea, didn't we, Jim? We thought that, you know, just in case the British weather does start to sort of tinker with our fixture schedule and ruin our enjoyment, we'd, um, we'd give the listeners an opportunity to enjoy some of the best footage from across the Tool Station Western League. That's right, yeah. So we, we did it last year during the lockdown. We put up a page on the website linking to, uh, to clubs' YouTube, YouTube pages, uh, and it seemed to go down really well. The hits on that page were good. So uh, we're going to update it with, um, with the new clubs that have joined us this year. Um, so, yeah, it's an easy easy access um, to get, get your football fix from the Tool Station Western League. So, yeah, we'll be putting, obviously, the Helston Mausels, and just a shout out to any clubs that we have missed um, seeing their YouTube channels. If they can send them across to us, uh, either via social media or email, just drop us a line with a link to the, your YouTube page and we're, uh, we'll publicise it and get people watching games or interviews. And like I say, Miles will have been doing a, a great documentary of uh, how far they've come, which I've really enjoyed watching. And uh, so, yeah, any Warminster fans get on just follow Roland as you say he stood down the pouring rain holding his gimbal um, showing his dedication to the cause that's for sure and of course the great thing about all of these footage is it's not just for the benefit of the of the home clubs obviously it's the fans that are going to get the benefit in the main but of course every time one of our sides um, plays a match there is another team involved and it might be a team that doesn't have their own uh, coverage. So actually throughout the season, you might find that in both divisions, there's three or four matches from other teams' channels that do get captured and that the fans can and enjoy in um, in, a, in retrospect. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's obviously the Helston guys go home and away. As you say, not everyone is lucky enough to have someone filming, filming their games for them. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's great for home and away fans. I mean, I'm the same as you, I think, every Sunday morning. Um, get the tweet from the uh, chaps down there, uh, Pyram Films, and sit and have a cup of coffee, doing the bulletin and uh, watching watching the highlights. I thoroughly enjoy it. It beats match of the day anyway. <laughs> Excellent. Right then, well, let's turn back to the football. And, and our hiatus this week has given me an opportunity to catch up with one of the managers we haven't been able to speak to so far on this season's Toolstation Western League podcast. It is Sean Annette, the manager 
of Bridport. Now, of course, the world over the last two years has been a crazy place for all of us, but it's not really been much better um, for Bridport. They're having another difficult season, and that's where my discussion with Sean started. Yes, it's been a, a particularly tough year, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, and the previous two or three years before that, you know, the club has been struggling um, a little bit um, with player recruitment, and really. Um, a number of managers have, since the days of, or since Alan Fricker and um, uh, Paddy Bean were at the helm, um, then, since then we've the club has struggled to find the right management team to push the club forward um, or even maintain the club in the, you know, at that level. So it's been a struggle. And um, this, uh, you could argue that the club have been saved a couple, for a couple of seasons by COVID, you know, with, with, with the season being, you know, uh, curtailed so uh, earlier than, uh, than uh, and not being completed. So this year, uh, the, the job was given, uh, the first team job was given to Rob Marquis and myself as, as his assistant. Um, we took the job on um, in the su- early summer, in, ju- in June, with the instruction, if you like, to try and provide or get as many young Bridport-based players playing in our in our first team. You know, I, in hindsight, uh, you know, looking back, you know, I knew that, you know, having played in the Tall Station League many many years ago, it wasn't the Tall Station then, but um, and obviously, you know, been around been around the football club now for probably eight or nine years. Um, I was aware of the of the level that was required, um, the standard that is required, and knew that it was going to be very, very, very tough. Um, but I think it would be fair to say that Rob Marquis probably uh, underestimated the level that was required to, to, to be competitive. So, yes, you're absolutely right in that, that uh, this year has been extremely tough, and it's probably, from a personal point of view, having played and coached and refereed and, and managed, you know, this has probably been the toughest year that I've had in football. You know, apart from one one game that we uh, that we won back in, I think it was September. Um, you know, then uh, every game has been a defeat, and that's hard to drag yourself each week. Not only me, but obviously I'm then. You know, part of me or part of my role is to is to motivate the players to come each week and, and try and perform and try and improve. And and that, as obviously as most people would see, has been really really tough. You know, Rob Marcus was, was given, um, or they parted company with the club just before Christmas, and the role has been given to me, and um, to, to take the club until a successor is found. Now, it's, will that be before the end of the season? It might. Might it be during the summer? You know, in the, in, for pre-season, then that's most likely. So it's my job to try and steer the club, steer the team as best I can for our remaining. 11 or 12 games. Because it's been a bit of a perfect storm, isn't it, this season? There there are two recurring themes we hear from managers when we talk to them in the Premier Division. One of them is, you know, even at the top end of the table, player availability this season because of the impact of the pandemic and the fact that people haven't been able to go on holidays, haven't been able to get married, they wanted to spend time with their families around Christmas. All of these factors have sort of contributed to issues of player availability. The, The second factor that they're telling us is that particularly with the um, restructuring, the actual quality, the strength in depth of the, of the Premier Division is, is stronger than it's been for quite some time. We're not seeing a Plymouth Parkway or a street running away with the Premier Division title. We are actually seeing it being a lot more competitive in the top half of the, of the table. So, I mean, that really, that, those two factors must have contributed to the difficulties that you're, you're facing at the moment. Yeah, without, without a shadow of a doubt. And... Um... You know, I have found that this year that most teams are at a, level, a very high level. You know, there's I can only you know recall probably a couple of games that I felt that we were competitive. In other games, it's been it's been very one-sided, um, and that, and you know the players have given and we have given the every every opportunity to local players. You know, local to Bridport to, to play, um, but there's no doubt about it that you know the, the standard is very high, um, and as I say there are more teams, you know, that are at that level, and that's proved most 
weeks with the results because anybody can beat anybody else, um, or so it would seem. Um, so yes, we have we have found that um, the level this year has been, like, as you said, there's no real teams that are running away with the league this year, and it's going to be very tight right the way through to the till April, May, you know, when the season finishes. So, um, but yes, and that has, has compounded our struggles really because there's no weak teams in my view. There's no teams that are you know struggling like we are, um, and so you know, each week is. Well, with that in mind, and it's something you mentioned earlier in the interview, you know, that, that your role now is trying to get the players motivated every week. I mean, how do you go about doing that? Because I would imagine that not only do you, well, you, it, it's your job to get the players motivated, but who gets you motivated? That's a good question. Um, and, it, and, it is, and it is it is difficult, you know. And, you know, I've been at the club, as I said to you, I've been at the club now for probably eight or nine years. I've been around the first team now for for two or three years before that I was reserve team manager for a number of seasons and I am a stubborn character um, the club have asked me to do a job um, and I you know will see that see that through um, and uh, you know it, it was certainly difficult I mean Rob Marcus when he was with in charge you know we did work quite well together we, we did support each other um, but at the moment the, the, the position is just now and you know I've got slightly more senior players that I can call upon and I've got you know reserve team guys that I can speak to and a, and a goalkeeper coach that I can that, that will be with me most weeks but but nevertheless you know it is hard for, to, to, to motivate myself to, uh, uh, but it's but it's something I have to do you know and, and I'm I'm determined to get the best out of the players that become, that are available that you know get the best out of the players between now and the end of the season, you know, it is, it is only eleven games, I think, and um, and one possible cup match, and it's important that we, you know, I, I do as best that I can to hand over a group of players that can be improved upon during the summer, ready for next year. So, I suppose if if we were going to say that if you'd set a target for for yourself between now and the rest of the season, it, it is to create that stability within the team and to give a platform for whoever takes on as first team manager um, going forward? I have given myself a target and that target is not a points total, it's not it's it's a performance target and it's a, what I want to see in these remaining games a more competitiveness I want to be more competitive within the 90 minutes, you know there have been 45 minute spells, 30 minute spells, 60 minute spells where we have been competitive, you know, with teams, but as you well know, games are ninety minutes, and that's where we've it's fallen down, and we've you know, and we've you know conceded lots of goals, um, and um, so so my my drive, if you like, is to see us be more competitive, and and I suppose all I'm saying is that I want the score lines, I want the scores to be closer, and um, if that means that you know we don't lose as heavily that will be a, a positive if it means that we can sneak uh, a draw or two that would be fantastic and if we could get a win under our belts between now and the end of the season then that would be a huge a huge positive for me the players and the club in preparation for next summer now you've got Shepton Mallet up next on the 22nd of January does that little break, does it give you an opportunity to spend a bit more time with the players on the training pitch or perhaps bring anyone in? I think bringing, bringing anybody in is, is going to be difficult, although that's, that's certainly not something that I've given up on, but it's something that you can imagine that running a team with the results uh, that we've had, the position that we're in in the league, um, attractive players to, the, to, to that team is, is hugely difficult. Um, but it has. It is nice. It is nice to have that little bit of time to uh, reflect a little bit, I suppose, and to recharge the batteries um, and to go again. Um, it gives one or two players time to get over COVID because we've had a number of COVID issues in the last or since Christmas, myself included. Um, so it does give us a little bit of a, a time to regroup. And, and prepare ourselves for, for Shepton on the 22nd. So, yeah, I think it's, it's good that we've had this little break. Um, the timing has been, you know, it's been helpful. 
Uh, one final question, and it's the question I ask everybody the first time I get a chance to talk to them on the Westernly podcast. Um, and uh, you've alluded to it a number of times in this discussion about your, your background with, with the club, but I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your personal footballing journey to the Bridport dugout. I played Westernly football when I was uh, in, in my late teens. I played uh, Town when they were in the Western League. Charred Town, and then I played Dorset uh, combination football um, in my early 20s. Um, and then, like a lot of players, I chose or I decided that the travelling that was involved even back then was probably not for me. And, and I ended up managing player and coaching at, 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 uh, at levels. And I first joined Bridport in the what would be probably the early 90s I would think and played in the combat played some first team football but mainly reserve team football uh, as a goalkeeper and um, and then I joined the football club um, about nine years ago when I was uh, appointed as the assistant reserve team manager um, and I and, and I held that role for I think it was two years and then was, was appointed reserve team manager under Trevor Senior, um, who was the first team manager at that point. And then I continued that role as reserve team manager at Bridport um, through the, the, the Trevor Senior and then, then the Adam Frickett time. And then um, right up until uh, the time where Jamie Manley and Kev Lee were appointed. And that's when I was asked if I would step up and assist them with, with first team matters so yes I've I've played um, a coached uh, managed refereed uh, various levels and and, and like I say I, I live in Bridport um, you know I love the club I love the people involved with the club and yeah I want to do the best I possibly can you know there's no doubt about it air recruitment has been our eye failing to attract the level of player that can compete in the tall station league certainly the Premier Division and you know it, it is the club are seeking you know to, to get a manager or managers in that can, can do that you know I mean um, and and what my role will be I don't know um, it might be time for me to have a break from football during the summer to, to see where you know what happens to me next but you know I'm I'm sure that Bridport will find the right people um, and you know that they'll improve and they'll they'll get back to where they they once were so um, yeah that's that's the aim Sean, thank you very much um, for taking the time to speak to us on the podcast. We, you know, a lot of the time this season, I've spoken to managers who've um, been in and around the top of the table and have got ambitions, um, you know, to to be going up. And I think it's not it's easy to talk uh, about ambitions um, when you're competitive. Uh, you've shown great character and great candour to talk about the situation that you've you've found. And I think really across the Western League family. The plight of Bridport is not something that has got unnoticed, and I think we all wish you the very, very best of luck for now and the end of the season. Thank you, Ian. That's uh, very kind. And my thanks to Sean for his time. Now then, before we move into our final interview of this week's podcast, Jim and I are going to we're going to take our lives in our hands, and we're going to dare to um, to to pick out some of the fixtures. Uh, for this coming weekend, I mean, clearly, I, I'll be I'll be perfectly honest with you. I haven't seen the weather forecast. I hope it's good, and I hope it means that more games um, get on. We will do our usual job of picking our top matches um, um, to uh, to watch. But of course, we have got the rather important matter of FA Vars action. We've got uh, we've got a number of sides still involved in that uh, competition. Bridgewater United, they're at home to Tunbridge Wells. Of course, these games taking place on Saturday, the 15th of January. Buckland Athletic, they entertain Egham FC. And we also have um, Southall FC. They are entertaining Clevedon Town. So Clevedon Town travelling there to Southall FC. The other two sides um, are at home. So those are our teams in FA Vars action. And of course, we wish them the very best of luck. Now, Jim, looking down that fixture list, uh, you know, keeping everything crossed, of course, which game catches your eye in the Premier Division? Uh, the one that stands out for me is Exmouth Town hosting Bitten. Um, obviously, Bitten a third. Played a game 
more than Exmouth who sit one place below them and one point behind. So I think that could be a real tasty encounter down in Devon on uh, on Saturday. Let's say fingers crossed the, the weather holds up. Um, but Exmouth get good crowds down there as well. So, um, yeah, really looking forward to seeing the uh, the outcome of that one. And my attention is drawn to Canesham Town, the AJN Stadium, Crownfields, um, where the visitors will be Elfracombe Town. Now, of course, Canesham are one of the clubs with a plastic pitch in the Western League. So barring a, a true sort of biblical act of weather, um, hopefully that game will, will get on come, I was going to say come hell or high water, but having seen the Canesham facilities under high water, that probably wouldn't be very helpful. If you're thinking, Tool Station, I know they'll save me money, but do they have all the top brands? You know, DeWalt, Makita, Einhell, Stanley, Myra, Kudox, Nest and Santex. Yeah, they do. Over 15,000 trade quality products in the range from the leading brands with prices that are hard to beat. If you want a helping hand to save on your next job, try Toolstation. With over 300 branches, there's always a Toolstation near you. Uh, we should now move into the first division, Jim. And which game um, catches your eye there? Well, I had a couple. I was down to Longwell Green Sports against Hengrove. Hengrove haven't played for a while. Um, so they'll be chomping at the bit to get going. But I'm looking now, I've changed my mind. So I'm going to go with uh, AK Bocco hosting Odd Down. Um, Odd Down are in sixth at the moment, just five points ahead of Bocco. But Bocco have got two games in hand on them. Um, so yeah, I'm going for that one. I know Bocco get good crowds up there as well because a yeah. few people haven't been there. It's a first, first ground for them, and I know they're really welcoming. So uh, yeah, I'm going to go with AK Bocco against Odd Down. Well, I'm going to go for the fixture that hopefully is going to turn not only the form table on its head, but also the league table on its head, because our league leaders, Welton Rovers, travel um, to Devizes Town. Um, I can report that Devizes' pitch was playable on Saturday. Um, there was a reserve team game that went ahead and between Devizes and um, Froome Collegians, which, um, which I was at, which was... Um, uh, well, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure my daughter really enjoyed me taking her out in the pouring rain for that one, but she's going to have to accompany me this week um, where Devizes Town take on the mighty Green Army. And, uh, of course, they always um, travel in numbers as well. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that that will be a, that will be a pleasant occasion um, for all. There we go. Uh, right then. Now, um, just before we wrap up this week's edition of the Toolstation Western League podcast, it's time to reintroduce an old friend, not only of the Western League, but also of the podcast, Martin Cassidy, the CEO of Ref Support. Now, I know online Martin can be something of a Marmite character, but um, he's completely unashamed in his um, support for match officials and his attempts to fight um, abuse. And I think that that's actually a case um, that we can all get behind. We wouldn't have a game without our match officials and um, standing up for them when they sometimes receive pretty horrendous abuse. And Martin, you know, does, um, doesn't shy away from posting this online. So we can all see examples of, of what our match officials have to go through. So it's always a pleasure to speak to Martin and hear what he's been up to, hear what's going on at Ref Support. And we started off with a story that's quite close to home because uh, recently the news reports you may have seen that the West the Western League have supported um, Ref Support in um, their calls for a, a, a pilot using body cams on match officials. And I started by asking Martin to tell us a bit about that. It was a really progressive, forward-thinking move by uh, the Western League because I'm sure, I can't speak for them particularly on this one, but I'm sure they're as frustrated as we are as a charity, the way, you know, the referees are getting treated per se. You know, we, we, in the Western League, I've said it before, you know, I've had a, you know, a 25-year relationship with the Western League, starting as a, as a, I don't know they call it assistant referees, but starting as a lino then get promoted being a referee and then moving up the ladder, but still going back to coaching and, um, and watching referees at Western League. You know, I see it for myself that there's some wonderful teams out there who, who do treat referees with respect, both before, during and after games, but there are some some characters that uh, that don't. And and we were very, very, we're quite honoured really to see the board make such a progressive move. That, that, that funny enough, Ian, that other, other leagues are starting to follow suit. Since we published that that letter, that very welcome letter, you know, we've had other leagues come forward and said, you know what, we're we're going to do the same, and in the next couple of weeks, we'll be able to publish the same letters that, um, similar to what what, what the Western League um, posted, where we can really see that 
you know, it's up to the leagues. Leagues own football. And I think sometimes people forget that. I believe, I believe certainly personally, that the game's governed upside down. You know, leagues like the West League and below, there's other grassroots leagues that are down there, that they, they, they should be able to stand up and say to the FA, actually, no, you're wrong how you govern the game. We think there should be more protection for referees. And the fact that body cameras can be used in every single walk of life Legally, it's an absolutely legally acceptable device. Why walking up across a white line on a on a on a field of play? Should the Lord of the Land come second place to the laws of the game? It's when you think about it, it's, it's quite ridiculous, isn't it? it? It is, and of course, body cams in sort of public security are quite common now. We expect to see them on police officers, and um, the footage is obviously quite widely broadcast. On um, on the media, so it, it 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 is difficult to understand why there would be an issue, and perhaps in a minute you could explain why the laws of the game currently prohibit um, uh, the the use of body cams. But one of the things that I was interested in seeing was the reaction on social media, and I want to have a chat with you about social media later because I know it's a big thing for you. Mm-hmm. But there were certain individuals whose reaction on social media was, well, if you wear a body cam, then that means we'll be able to see all your mistakes. Now. I suppose that's one way of looking at it. But the other way of looking at it is if I get into the face or if a player gets into the face of a match official and calls him all the names under the sun or her, then actually we'd see that as well. So I think people need to get their priorities right on this one, don't they, Martin? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think think that's fair, Ian. I think us as a charity would be very disingenuous if we didn't say every referee is fit for the level that they operate at. It would be absolutely inaccurate for us to say Every referee has a blinder and does everything right at every minute of every game. That would just be disingenuous. And I think we'd lose credibility for that. But what we what we would say is that it's more often that you'll get someone giving referees abuse and threats and the referees don't deal with it for whatever reason. There's there's absolutely loads of different reasons they wouldn't they don't deal with it, unfortunately. Some as club marks, rightly or wrongly, you know, the the worry that if they do send someone off who's who's give them abuse, you know, they might get a, a bad club marks and club marks are part of the promotion system. So I think I think that is definitely, I would say, a, a part of the problems that referees aren't addressing it. And then obviously you have the other side of the coin where when there's an assessor present, what they're called observers now, but they're assessors, referees sometimes overreact and they'll send off every every comment that, that, that some players make to an empty So we have this problem that nobody wants in football where you have referees under refereeing when there's no assessor there to try and take care of the the club marks in essence you know and then you have referees over refereeing where they they'll be kicking they'll be given yellow cards that they wouldn't necessarily give when an observer's not there and i think having a body camera would be able to solve that problem immediately you know because they would say look the evidence is, is there and i think when you look at um, the teams in the West League, particularly, but well, I, I've got experience across the whole football pyramids, you, uh, I think the, the clubs just want to know what a yellow card is. They just want to know, you know, from one game to the next, assess it or not, what a yellow card is. And I, I don't think why that's so difficult to do. I really, really don't. And I think once we get that consistency, which is a word I don't really think exists really in football because... When we coach referees, we talk to referees, you can only be consistent in your game. Sometimes you can only be consistent within a period of your game because a high-tempo game needs to be refereed differently than a game that's just flowing. You've got a good sunny day, no one's really getting stuck in, everyone's behaving themselves. You're going to stay out of it a bit more than the tackles are sliding in on a rain and wind and everything else coming in. But you've got to think of many different ingredients that, that, that makes you change your attitude to a game, the tempo of the game, the temperature of the game, the weather conditions can all change how you referee. But nobody in football, I, I, I know what we've talked about this, are against body cameras. Many people say that um, referee said this to me and many refs say, well, he said that to me. But there's, there's no evidence. It just becomes a problem because when it goes to a hearing, the FA's uh, discipline procedures and processes are all about the weight of probability. You know, and, and if a club's got four players there who will say, well, that didn't happen, and the referees can only bring himself because a lot of people don't know that a ref can't bring a witness to it. They, they can't do that. The 
probability is always balanced in favour of a, of the players, even though some players will say, ah, oh, the referee lied and, you know, it didn't happen. So I think the bigger picture all around, particularly with body cameras, is I think we will get a truer game, you know. And I think, you know, the people say about safeguards and with children and, and stuff like that. I just don't have it. IFAB, you make the laws and they, and they put in law five, no cameras and recording devices. You know, they say, oh, we've got to worry about safeguards. And, but when, when, when the telly, on the telly on a live game, when the camera pans to, to a, a stadium anywhere in the world and there's children there, they don't worry about any safeguarding procedures there. They don't know if that child's under any form of protection or safeguarding themselves or the, you know, they don't want to be identified. That seems to be perfectly acceptable across the world. But come to solving a problem within football, all of a sudden this, this problem's there. Rugby doesn't have it. Rugby did a trial in a children's environment. Nobody kicked up a stink. Everyone loved it. Everyone knows what the essence of a body camera is. And it's there, we believe, to make the game better for everybody. So I don't accept any any argument from the FA or IFAB, who are the governing body, who write the laws. I don't buy any of it. I, I, I've said on records, I believe it's money. I believe the, the reason they do not want body cameras is because they make an awful lot of money out of a referee and a player not getting on. That they really do. And, and I think there was an article by, um, uh, I can't remember his name, Sam, Sam Cunningham from the iPaper. And he said, the FA make eight million a year from yellow and red cards. Eight million a year. Now, you tell me any business that wants to stem an income stream. And I think that's the answer why they don't want body cameras in football. Because, the, because that problem with discipline and making money isn't such a big problem in rugby. Hence, on the go, walk in there, no problems at all. And I can't see why, why a governing body of one sport to another in the same country allows body cameras and one doesn't. So I don't buy any of it from the FA or the world governing bodies that that, uh, that the reason they're, not, they're doing it is like safeguarding and who owns the footage. And, you know, many, many clubs also on their Twitter accounts talking about social media have done deals with VO. A great product, absolutely welcome it. Some of them I've seen on Twitter, we've took them to task, are using the VO camera to slate the referee. Well, that's that's not really what it's there for, you know. And interestingly, some of these people who were, who were putting their videos up of, of referees who got this one or that one, they tend to mute the sounds so you don't hear what's being said by the benches. That in itself, I think, is, is quite interesting. If you're going to be really true and honest about the game, then let's be really true and honest. So I don't know why County FAs can do a foot can do a, a deal, a sponsorship deal with VO, who for every game in 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 their jurisdiction, which is a camera off the field to play, but a referee can't wear a camera on the field to play. So again, this massive this massive clue is there. To me, a body camera will ensure that the referee, you know, operates properly and doesn't say things that he shouldn't say or she, and play and it's a deterrent for players. You know, um, preventing them, abusing them, and most of all, uh, assaulting them. But I think it's a, a as evidence gather, gather that it'd be great. But I think it'll be a really good training aid for referees, which we all want referees to get better. If referee, you know, has missed something and it's on the camera, you say, look, you're standing in the in the wrong position there. If you moved a bit to the left or the right, you might have seen that, and you might have got that decision right. I think that's invaluable. But I just think how we accept it is a sport will be really important in this in in regards to making the game better for everyone. And and again, the Western League, uh, we, we just we were so happy when they put pens of paper to say, yeah, we, we'll take part in a in a pilot. You know, let's have a pilot of body cameras. I think it was brilliant, really, really good. I'm I'm really pleased that you talked a bit about <clears throat> about clubs sort of own video footage. Um, because of course one of the great talking points in the professional game is VAR. Stockley Park and um, there are plenty of fans who aren't particularly happy about it and to be fair Martin you may have a view on whether or not actually the use of VAR has encouraged abuse of, of match officials but we're in a weird sort of hinterland at the non-league game because of course I mean you don't get um, VAR outside of the Premier League anyway but because we are now seeing more and more video footage of um, uh, of, of non-league football, and indeed, to be fair, we, we and on this episode of the Western League podcast, we celebrate the contribution that our growing number of club photographers make. Yeah. But I have seen a large number of still photographs and, and some small clips of footage used as evidence to say, well, we were robbed today. That should have been a penalty. That was never a sending off, <laughs> you know. Now, what... 
it, it, to, to be fair, part of the joy of amateur of, of non-league football is that, of course, we get the opportunity to treat our game like we want to treat the professional game. And why shouldn't we? We're all part of the pyramid. That's why the pyramid exists. But actually, from a mesh, from a match official's perspective, VAR, there are protocols around its use and everything. But what we're seeing almost at the non-league game is the Wild West. You know, your match officials are being judged by these clips and by these photographs. I mean, what, what's your what's your view on that? I, I think I agree with an awful lot of that. I think, you know, um, the photographers, particularly in the last, you know, few months before COVID and all through COVID and afterwards, there's been some wonderful photographers who you go, you go online and they post photographs of referees and they, they tag us up and say, oh, this is this referee up in Liverpool and is this referee over in Sussex and is this referee in Somerset? And, and it's really, really good to see that sort of positivity. There's some great photos of referees maybe trip who fell over or... They've got a funny face, or they're doing something lovely, and you know, like tying the laces of a ch of a child whose laces have come undone. And I, th I think that's the way forward. And I think photo photography has got a massive, massive positive place in 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 the game all across the world. And that's how you use it. I was important, but if they want referees to to referee and still pictures, I think they might be quite upset on some of the things the referee will find that might not have been a still picture if they wanted to. Like, and I just think. People talk about consistency. I always say consistency is like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder. What one person thinks is consistent, another one won't because their snapshot of the incident is a different angle or, or has got a, a different a different view. So so yeah, cameras are brilliant. Absolutely brilliant, and, and, and some photographers out there are, are, are great with us. When it comes to VAR, I think the essence of what VAR was brought in for, I think everybody wants it, didn't he? You know, but it's definitely be careful what you wish for VAR, isn't it? And I remember us tweeting saying, you know, the only VAR we're against is violence against referees, which is a campaign we had. But I think what's happening is it's just given other tools to beat referees up here, metaphorically. And I think, you know, even, you know, we're we, we recording this on a on a Tuesday and you had the uh, Man United game last night in, in the FA Cup against Villa, where VAR went on for three plus minutes now, really, I don't think that's what VAR was for. You know, how far do you go back to find to find something that could have affected the game? And I think that that process really needs looking at. And I think if you've got to look that hard to find something wrong, then then that, there's a problem. We always said about giving the attacker the benefit of doubt, and I don't know where that's gone really in the mentality of, you know, we say about assessors, don't we? You know, if you're assessing referee referees, don't go looking for something to do wrong. Just see something is wrong if they see it. Comment on it. Don't go look and say, no, he hasn't stood there. Or he... And I think that's where we are with VAR. I think it's almost panic stations, really, where we let, let's go and find something wrong. And it's taken away the gut instinct of referees. And I think everyone will say about uh, having a gut instinct for sport and football in, in every, every, every way, shape and form encourages you to be better. You get this gut instinct that something isn't right and you, you might make a decision by what's going on and you feel it and... You can sometimes see it. I think VAR is 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 stemming that development of a referee. But what I'm not sure what people fully understand about VAR with regards to it's still a person who makes the decision. It's not this like R two D two stick in Stockley Park. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it's a person who's got to then decipher the information that's given to him by by, by these. So that's always going to be a problem. And then throw into the pot that you might have a new referee on VAR telling an experienced referee. He's got something wrong, rightly or wrongly. There's, 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 that's an ingredient. That's an ingredient, and and vice versa. You could have a very experienced someone like Mike Dean on VAR mm. telling a brand new referee like Dallin England or or some of the new ones like Andy Madeley. Oh, you got that wrong, and they might be, oh my God, it must be right. Mike's seen it. So I think those ingredients, rightly or wrongly, I think all these little ingredients that are going into it, just making VAR something that I'm not sure that's what football wants at the moment, is it? I think it's. It's something I, I think can make the game better. But, you know, you, you shouldn't have to go past a minute. In the Euros, remember in the Euros, everyone was made up, weren't they? Everyone was absolutely made up with VAR. We started the season really positive. You've seen what happens with um, Anthony Taylor, with, with the Christian Eriksen incident. All the positivity in the world. And we had it for about a month, didn't we? VAR was working. And it's just creeped back in this, this over-analytical approach to finding something wrong with a goal rather than seeing something wrong with a goal. So in a nutshell, I think VAR, when used properly with the right processes, will make the game better. But I don't think it's doing that at the moment. I really don't. Um, 
we bring, if we bring this back to sort of match officiating at the Western League level, and I mean, and and when I say the Western level, I mean in fairness, the level across the country. Um, there's been coverage and talk about a shortage of match officials, and I know that this was a great concern um, after coming out of the pandemic. That you know people wondered whether supporters would go back to clubs, whether mm. players would make themselves available. And every week on the podcast, we talk to managers who talk about how difficult it is to put out a competitive side on a Saturday afternoon. And I'm guessing um, from the lit, from the bits I've seen on social media that that's also the case for match officials can you tell us sort of you know going into this season what is the state of officiating really post covid well it's the it's the, the lowest number of referees ever ever and what, what is interesting you get some county fa's going oh we haven't got referees it's, it's terrible it's all because of the abuse as if abuse is a new thing they went tweeting about it two years ago when it was really really bad it's just as bad now and i think again that it's a little bit disingenuous by some county fa's to say like oh we've got a big problem we haven't got any referees and it's it's down to abuse well they've had years to sort this out absolute years to sort this out and they and they just haven't and it goes back to the point i said you know they're making too much money out of it so i'm not accepting it i think what's happened is it's happened to players and this definitely happens even with myself people are a little bit little bit wary about going out you know, in crowded areas, which which is everyone's decision, really, and a personal choice. But I think people have just found better things to, to do than be shouted at for 90 minutes. And I think people have found better things to do to have to travel. You know, they leave at 10 o'clock in the morning, go to some games. They're not back till, like, 8 o'clock at night, and they're getting 34 quid for it and, and an hour and a half of abuse, and they're going into the bar where they normally get lovely hospitality and getting threatened and abused in a bar. Who, who really wants that when they found something else to do? on a Saturday afternoon. And I think that's that's a problem that really needs to be identified is that, you know, sometimes we've had enough. We just had enough. And then no one's gonna no one's gonna uh, no one's gonna um, gain from that. Nobody football isn't and and then you get people saying complaining about the standard of the refereeing. But what they use they're using lower ref- referees to cover the 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 positions of the higher referees. You you see this with the FA Cups on massive shortage and and it all goes down to the to the lower level of games and I think I don't believe that good players players make good referees I just don't I just I, I just don't have that you know a good dog doesn't make a good vet does it you know what I mean so I think I, I think like I think just because you're in a sport doesn't mean you're going to know how to referee it and I think there's a little bit of leg I was an ex-player I I only talk about refereeing because I was injured always getting sent off really found it difficult moving down from Liverpool to the West Country 31 years ago, very different environment. I couldn't understand why people were in as violent as they are in Liverpool, really, if, if, if I'm being honest on it. And I found that um, it's a lot calmer down here, or it was then, 30 years ago. It's certainly not like that now. When I look at football now, it's not, when I started down here, I don't want to sound like an old man, when I started playing down here, it was, it was, it was quite relaxed, really. I didn't find anywhere near it was like in Liverpool. But now it's certainly caught up at Liverpool, but they'd answer ferocity and the amount of abuse that you get from from fans that you just wouldn't normally get. And, you, and you're getting serious incidences occurring from, like, throw-ins, you know, which just never used to happen. They're just losing their minds over silly incidences, and it's definitely, definitely worse post-COVID. And we've seen videos that's happened recently, certain levels of football where, you know, people are caught on camera by, by spectators. We, you know, you see incidents that are reported there that, is really a worrying concern if you know the FA aren't dealing with those videos and those incidents really quickly, really robustly. And so, yeah, there's, there's there's lots wrong with the game, but we can't just play it. Can't blame it on the FA. You know, we can't blame the FA when someone headbutts a referee. Yeah. The only the person who headbutts. What we can put at the at the FA's door and county FA's door of how they deal with it and what do they do to prevent it. And and again, I remember having a discussion with um, Troy Townsend from the from the Kick It Out campaign, a wonderful you know. The charity addressing racism in football. And he said, you know, it's like over in America, they got the death sentence. It doesn't prevent people murdering people. Do you know what I mean? So so we know that harsher punishments doesn't solve the problem. But I'm sure, I'm sure it diminishes the chance of ever happening. And I think, you know, clubs might not like this, but we believe that clubs should be deducted points. Absolutely. If they're, if they're persistent, you know, offenders and poor discipline, I think they should lose points. And you, you, you see within, within this level of football where you might not get promoted to the Southern League because your facilities are not good enough. And clubs and 
clubs like Street spent a fortune on it, didn't he? Going up and he had a bit of a shift around, he had to come back down again. But you get clubs clubs who have to spend a fortune to climb the ladder, but they don't have to increase the behaviour. So there's no incentive. You know, even even in last but one World Cup, when I think it was Cameroon, they got um they got they qualified for the knockout stages of the World Cup or whatever. Yeah, we World Cup. Purely because of their behaviour, they had the least amount of yellow cards. So this this is already there for how we can treat you know abuse and discipline differently. And I think for a, for a club that can get relegated and promoted uh, or preventive of being promoted on the standard of their facilities, but they don't on the standard of their discipline, I think just isn't the correct message to send out for football at any level whatsoever. Martin, <clears throat> I could quite happily speak to you for hours. But I'm conscious that you're you're a very busy man. So, but there is one last sort of question that I really wanted to sort of put to you because, of course, one thing that hasn't changed coming out of the pandemic is that you've been um, every bit as active on social media as you were before. Um, and I know that you feel very passionately that using social media to support and defend match officials is a really important way of combating the abuse that they face at every level of the game. Now, I know in some quarters that's drawn criticism. Some people don't agree with what you're doing. Um, but I just wanted to give you an opportunity really to sort of explain what your thinking is, what your rationale is and how you use social media to try and put the, the case for the defence. Absolutely. And I think I think it's right that how we how we operate on social media sometimes isn't everyone's you know cup of tea, and and I respect that, and, and I really do respect it. People are used, to, particularly with a charity, they say, oh, it's just it's just the correct way for a registered charity to operate. You know, we're going after clubs and we're going after individuals like Neil Warnock and people like that. When I was on Talk Sports, but they don't say that to when they're, they're showing you know donkeys with with, with legs hanging off and the charities are using there to, to to raise their profile and or even children going right back to live aid using children you know horrible images of children rightly so and being successful but it seems to be people criticize us that we can't go after someone who's abused a referee online so i don't accept that i don't think a charity should act any differently to, to any other organization for the, for the threats and abuse in fact i would like to go a little bit harder on some of these people, but I get talked out of it by some of the more sensible trustees that are involved in Rev Support UK. But it was a conscious decision, a conscious decision as an organisation. We sat there week after week. We've seen commentators on TV absolutely slating referees. We get a manager goes on post-match, absolutely slates referees. Absolutely, totally detracts away from a poor performance. And then that's, that's a starting gun. And then before you know it, it goes on social media. Other people start getting worse and worse and worse. And they got death threats. You're getting bullets put, posting through, you know, Michael Oliver's letterbox, threats to his wife, you know, horrible things to the children of these referees, horrible, horrible things. We're all for banter. But I think this should be almost a banter abuse scale that needs to be identified because some of the things that are out there are just unacceptable. And I just refuse to accept a, a club, a respected club's Twitter account, naming referees and telling them how bad they are and what they've done wrong. When there's a video of one of their prime forwards missing a penalty or missing an open goal you never see it and I know we go on Twitter and we put stuff out like we've done recently saying no one had to go with that, with that they got knocked out on penalties someone missed a penalty and they got knocked out but no one had to go with them they'll go on unlucky but a referee doesn't give a penalty that was a penalty they get absolutely castigated so this gulf in what's accepted from a referee's mistake compared to a player's mistake it just needs to be realised and closed and this desensitisation of referee abuse just needs to stop. We're not fair game. Gary Lineker did it on a match of the day last season when Lee Mason blew the whistle twice on a free kick and, it, and that was goal scores. And, and because the players stopped, he allowed the goal. Now, they spent three minutes, 18 seconds talking about uh, Lee Mason's blown the whistle twice. But in that game, I can't remember who it was. It must have been Leicester. They lost 2-1. And Leicester missed two penalties, if it was Leicester. So a player missed two penalties. He spent 18 seconds saying hard luck on the penalties, but three over three minutes talking about the referee, you know, blowing his whistle twice. That's a really good example of of what's been become the norm in refereeing, which then gets mimicked down at grassroots football. When you see someone copy a look, how many teams copy or players copy Ronaldo goal celebration now? Why wouldn't they copy Neil Warnock getting in some referee's face? Why, why wouldn't they? You know, so this. This mimicking attitude is clear that people are seeing it at the top and thinking, look, they're doing it there on match of the day or, you know, at Chelsea or at Sheffield Wednesday or Middlesbrough. Then I'm going to do it at Carl. I'm going to do it at Street. I'm going to do it 
that picks up something, you know, I'm going to do it at Longwell Green. It's a very simple equation. So dress it at the, at the top and the bottom. I think we'll get there quicker than just waiting for, you know, the FA and the PGOML to do stuff. And that's why it was important, you know, this letter got sent out by the Western League because it shows the leagues and the clubs have got power. They have got a voice to say, we will do a pilot. And if other leagues come forward like they have, we will do a pilot. It's it, it should make the FA realise, hang on a sec, you know, maybe we have called this wrong because football in general does want what's best for the game. And my thanks to Martin um, for his time. Well, given that we didn't have any, we didn't have a great deal of football to talk about, Jim, I think we've, um, I think we've more than made up for it with this week's podcast. Um, fingers crossed we have a more normal edition of the Toolstation Western League podcast um, um, for the listeners next week. But will you be out and about this weekend if the, uh, if, if the weather permits? Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Um, I'm still unsure where to go. I tried to mix it up a little bit, but um most probably go to Portishead against the mighty zebras, I would have thought, because it's not very far from me. So depending on the weather, I'll probably head to Portishead against Sherbourne, I would have thought. How about yourself? Well, you I already said where you I, were going. I, indeed. It's good to know that you were paying attention there, Jim. Um, indeed. <laughs> the the um, um, one thing, because when, when you do um, go out and about, you, you, you often take your camera, don't you? And, um, and obviously, we, I know we see some of your pictures sort of online and, and in the bulletin, but that's, um, that's one of the things you enjoy doing when you go and watch a game. Yeah, I do, yes. Um, I haven't used it for a while. So I, the other week I went down to um, Ashton and Backwell against Cadbury Heath. Um, they had a good crowd down there. It was really enjoyable, actually. So, yeah, it's nice to get out and about. And obviously, we, we've mentioned it on previous podcasts, but we're very lucky in the Western League with the volunteer photographers we got that supply us with pictures for the bulletin and for the website. And we're actually getting more through. So it's another shout-out, really. So if anyone does take pictures of the Western League games, then send over the images to us. We'd be more than grateful. And uh, yeah, we'll put them on the gallery pages and uh, use them in the bulletin. So yeah, get in touch and uh, send your images over. Absolutely. It, it certainly is great to see more and more people volunteering. But I think perhaps one of the things that people newer um, to the idea of taking pictures at matches um, um, should consider is, is there is a bit of an etiquette, isn't there? When we go to games and, and take a picture, what, what is it that you do to, um, to, uh, to get permission from the, from the host club? Normally uh, email them or touch base with them on social media, send them an inbox message, just seeing if it's okay, if I can uh, bring my camera along to take photos. Um, I've never had a club say no. I think they're grateful that I've touched base beforehand just to say I'm coming along with a camera. I always offer the, offer the home club or the away club, or both clubs, um, any images that I take that they can feel free to use on their programs, websites, social media. They can uh, have full access to any of the images. So, yeah, it's just basically just touching base with the with the host club so they're aware you're going and so you're not treading on anyone's toes or getting in the way and they're just wondering what you're what you're doing there. They, they're aware that you'll be you'll be attending. So just just make contact with them. And I'd say nine times out of ten, most are really receptive and say, yes, we're more than welcome to go along. Excellent, Jim. It's lovely to catch up with you again. Um, you know, take this in the way that it is meant, because I do hope that um, Tom is back with us um, um, back next week. But it is always a pleasure to catch up with you. You're doing a lot of great work on um, on social media. And I, I know we've got another couple of sort of campaigns up our sleeves, so we may well be wheeling you out um, sooner rather than later to, um, to tell the listeners um, all about that. But from James and myself, you have been listening to the Tool Station Western League podcast.